You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. Now, growing up, many of us heard the story about Noah's Ark. We loved to think about all these animals traveling and hearing the story. There was just something fascinating about it. Today, a lot of skeptics say there was something morbid about it, and not only that, there's not really any scientific evidence that this happened. Well, maybe many of us are just misunderstanding the flood. Maybe there's a whole world behind the flood that we don't know about. Maybe one could even say it's a lost world beyond the flood. Where earlier this year, there was a book released just called that, The Lost World of the Flood, and it has two authors, John Wharton and Trimper Longman III. And Dr. Longman is my guest today to talk about this book. He's got a BA in Ohio, from Ohio Wesleyan University, an MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary, and MPhil and PhD from Yale University. He's a distinguished scholar and professor emeritus of biblical studies at Westmont College, he has written over 30 books, including commentaries on Genesis, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, and Nahum. His most recent books are The Fear of the Lord is Wisdom, A Theological Introduction to Wisdom Literature in Israel, and Lost World of the Flood with John Wharton. His books have been translated in 17 different languages. In addition, as a Hebrew scholar, he is one of the main translators of a popular New Living Translation of the Bible, and has served as a consultant on other popular translations of the Bible, including the Message, the New Century Version, the Holman Standard Bible, and the Common Bible. He has also edited and contributed to a number of study Bibles and Bible dictionaries, most recently the Baker Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Trimper and Alice currently reside in Alexandria, Virginia, and have three sons, Trimper IV, Timothy, Andrew, and four granddaughters, Gabrielle, Mia, Ava, and Emerson. For exercise, he enjoys playing squash. Um, Dr. Longman, welcome to Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you very much, Nick. It's great to be with you. If my audience doesn't know about who you are, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, that's uh, a long story, but I'll keep it short. It's long because I've been doing it for many years. I, um, I became a Christian in my senior year of high school, way back in the late 1960s, very late, 1969. And, um, and when I went off to college, I was very, of course, very intent on learning as much as I could about the Bible. So I started taking uh, religion courses at my college, but my religion professors were, uh, let's 
say not really friendly to the gospel. And so they were very critical in their approach to scripture. And that uh, got me interested in doing deeper study. And then as a young Christian, I had, uh, I had exposure to um, R.C. Sproul, who would occasionally come to our college campus, and other thinkers who kind of made me want to become a professor. Um, and I met my future wife, Alice, in college, and she had just become a Christian, too, through a bunch of students at Westminster Seminary. So uh, that sent me off to Westminster, and I came under the influence of a very exciting and uh, uh, vibrant professor of the Old Testament named Raymond Dillard, and um, the rest is history. I, he encouraged me to go do a doctorate at Yale, and I did that, and so um, I really uh, wanted to help Christians, particularly pastors, to know about the Old Testament, the importance of the Old Testament for our Christian life, and um, and so I taught at Westminster Seminary for about 20 years, and then I went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, where I taught for about 20 years, and I retired about a year ago, but I'm still writing and teaching and lecturing and editing and uh, just generally uh, still, still trying to uh, teach about the Old Testament as I learn new things about it every day. Mm-hmm. Now, something I like to ask people when they come on their specialists in the Old Testament, because so many Christians, they, they really love the New Testament, as they should. I mean, that's where we learn explicitly about Jesus. But it yeah. seems like the Old Testament sometimes gets neglected. I mean, I was just telling someone the other day that you can give someone a gospel message that where Adam and Eve were in this garden, and they sinned by eating the fruit. And so then God decided to send Jesus. And it's like they skip over everything from Genesis 4 <laughs> on to, Ma- to Ma- the end of Malachi. And they, you know, that stuff in the middle, it might be a little bit important. Yeah, that's right, Nick. I, that's one of the reasons why I went into Old Testament studies, because even 40 years ago when I first started studying the Old Testament seriously uh, in order to teach it, there were that attitude was, around and uh they're and it's very unfortunate for a whole bunch of reasons um but one thing i like to remind people about um is luke 24 where jesus himself said essentially the whole old testament is about him so if you Mm -hmm. want to know about jesus then you need to read the old testament and then secondly i mean we learn so much about you know, how God wants us to live through his law and through wisdom and how to pray to him through the Psalms. And so if you neglect the Old Testament, you're really neglecting uh, a major part of Scripture. I also like to say that somebody who just reads the New Testament is like somebody who goes to a movie uh, 15 minutes before it ends, and you're watching the first, the last 15 minutes, and it may be exciting, but you really don't understand what's going on because you haven't really understood the first hour and a half of the movie. Um, and um, so, so it, it's that's not to say that it's 
it's easy to understand how the Old Testament applies to us as Christians today, because there are, of course, discontinuities between the Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. But it just means we need to think about it and mm-hmm. study it not mm-hmm. with our hearts and our minds. And uh, and for those who do that, it's greatly rewarding. For those who don't, it's, it's very dangerous, because mm-hmm. you're really cutting yourself off from knowledge of God mm-hmm. and... Even even a couple of weeks ago, a uh, popular evangelical preacher uh, announced that we ought to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and mm-hmm. can't think of anything more dangerous than that. So I hope he changes. I hope he changes his views. He's come under a lot of criticism, uh, but but we got to be careful about that. I certainly hope so. I knew exactly who you were talking about as soon as you got started. And something I also tell Christians, and I see what you think this is, you know, when you sit down and you read some of the Old Testament, I want for a little while for you to stop being a Christian. What I mean by that is, I want you to imagine you're like a Jew at the time that you think the text was written, and you don't know yeah. a thing about Jesus, and just think, if I didn't know a thing about Jesus, how would I interpret this text? Because the text yeah, has right. to have a meaning before the Christians get to it, too. That's exactly right, Nick. I make that point in a lot of my writing, that while the whole Old Testament's about Jesus, uh, we first of all have to ask, how did the original audience understand this text? Mm-hmm. Before we look at it in the light of the of the fuller knowledge that we have now that we live after Jesus has come, mm-hmm. so so I I agree wholeheartedly with that. Now let's get into the book, and I have to say it's a bit humorous going through this book in some ways because I've had John Walton on the show a number of times, and I think it was after the Lost World of Adam and Eve. I said. So, Dr. Walton, can we expect to see any more books? I mean, maybe we'll see some, like, The Lost World of the Flood or something like that. No, that's it. We're done. And looks like we're not. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I was the one who uh, talked John into writing it. He told me that, too. And I said, look, John, uh, both of us lecture and write and speak about Genesis 1 through 3, and many people ask us when we're done, well, what about the flood? What what implications does what you're saying about Genesis 1 through 3 have for Genesis 6 through 9? And I said, um, let's, we had earlier written a book together called How to Read Job, which is in a series of books that I've written, How to Read Psalms, How to Read Exodus, mm-hmm. etc. So, he approached me and said, I'd like to write How to Read Job with you. And I said, okay, let's do it. So I said, well, you wanted me to write How to Read Job. Now I want you to write Lost World of the Flood. So, uh, so um, yeah, so he agreed, and we, we um, uh, wrote it together. And, um, and we've been longtime good friends. We don't agree on every point. But uh, but we largely agree with each other, and you know, apparently writing Lost World of the Flood has led him to. Uh, he and his son wrote Lost World of the Conquest recently, mm-hmm. so um, mm-hmm. 
which, which may be one of the areas I don't totally agree with them about, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> well, if anyone wants to hear about that, we actually did already interview him on The Lost World of the Conquest. I think it was done okay. earlier this Good. year, so you can go back and check your archives here. And I'll go ahead and give another personal plug. I thought How to Read Job was an excellent book. I mean, it, it really changed my approach to the book. Oh, thanks. Thanks for mentioning that, Nick. Now, let's get into this book here. And um, you, like all the other Lost World books, there are a number of propositions. Now, some of these could be hotly contested, but I, I'm quite convinced even the strictest atheists will not disagree with Proposition 1. Genesis is an ancient document. I, I don't think I've encountered many atheists who say that Genesis <laughs> is a modern document. So, I mean, this right. seems like, kind of like saying the sky is blue or water is wet. <laughs> it, it seems kind of like, yeah, we get that. But is there something more to saying Genesis is an ancient document than just, hey, it's old? <laughs> well, you know, the reason why we have to make this point, Nick, is because mm -hmm. even though on one level people will say, yeah, it was written many years ago, uh, a lot of time uh, people don't realize that that has implications for how we read Genesis. Mm -hmm. uh, many people read Genesis as if it were written yesterday and don't bother to think about what was the ancient context in which it was written. So, mm -hmm. so it's not just making the observation, it's also um, in, it's also in, telling us that we really need to take into account the ancient context. As, as John frequently puts it, we need to remember that while the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us. Uh -huh. And so it, was, it wasn't written in English or any modern language. It was written, written in Hebrew. It needs to be translated for most uh, <clears throat> read it at all into English. And then we have to, um, you know, read it in the light of the thinking of the day rather than imposing our modern uh, kind of expectations upon it. And, and again, yeah, that, that takes some work. It takes some study. But while the Bible is very clear on its big message of salvation, uh, there's no promise given and no, um, you know, no, uh, I, I come from a conservative reformed perspective, which talks about the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity of scripture. But if you read the Westminster Confession of Faith on the perspicuity of scripture, you see it isn't talking about everything is clear. Matter of fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith begins its statement on the clarity of Scripture by saying not everything in Scripture is uh, alike clear and in of themselves, but those things that matter for salvation are clear. So um, I think modern evangelicals, uh, uh, we often wrongly think that the Bible ought to be immediately clear to us and we don't need to study, we don't mm -hmm. need any kind of experts to help us understand the Bible. We don't need to study the ancient context or think about ancient creation or blood stories. 
and 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 that's that's not true. I mean, mm-hmm. the Bible never claims that that's true, and neither do our theological traditions. And you know, there's a lot of Christians out there that would take a very holy stance and say, "We have the Holy Spirit, and that's all we need." to understand scripture. You know, that sounds really holy to say, but it's really not that easy, is it? No, it's it's not. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. We need the Holy Spirit to really understand it, and, uh, and we need to approach scripture as the word of God that we submit ourselves to it, and it is totally true in everything that it intends to teach us. It is inerrant in that sense, which is the sense that it's described in the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which is the evangelical statement on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, but yeah, um, obviously the Spirit doesn't lead to inerrant interpretations Otherwise, every Christian would agree on every every matter of interpretation, and there are Christians of of good faith and intent, and who pray, and uh, we all, all of us, uh, will misunderstand parts of Scripture, and we need to constantly be um, be thinking about scripture critically. Now, now we're not critical of scripture, we're critical of our interpretation of scripture. Mm-hmm. Again, remembering that what's really important for salvation is absolutely clear, it's taught very clearly, it's taught many times, but something like was the flood a worldwide flood, or was were the days 24-hour days? Those are matters that we need to talk about, and be open about. They're not matters of that are nece- necessary for our salvation. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I might, some people think, oh, if you doubt even some minor, your your understanding of some minor point of scripture, it throws the whole thing in doubt. And that's not a, that's not, that's kind of a ridiculous position to yeah. hold. Um, mm-hmm. Um, the whole house of cards don't come crumbling down if we can't come to certainty about, you know, the nature of the days of Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because because what is certain is that Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God created everything, including human beings. That's what it says very clearly. It doesn't tell us, though, how he created human beings. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, it yeah. isn't clear about that matter. Now, something I like that you say also in first proposition is that Genesis 1 is written in a high-context society. Now, I like this because in New Testament circles and such, we often say, well, why didn't Paul say such and such about the historical Jesus? Why didn't he talk about his miracles or his virgin birth, which I do affirm, and all these other things? And we say, because that's background knowledge. Everyone who got the epistles already knew about it. Now that same thing is going on in the Old Testament, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Uh, And, and, you know, John wrote this first proposition, though I wholly agree with it, that that it is a high-context thing, that 
the writers who are writing to a very specific audience already know some things that, you know, the author of Genesis doesn't have to explain to -hmm. them. Uh, And John's example of driving around Chicago and hearing a traffic report, which would be totally uh, mysterious to Mm -hmm. uh, those of us who don't live in Chicago, would be perfectly clear to somebody who drives every day in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Another example I use is, I mean, I suppose hypothetically better. You and ours decide that you're in Atlanta and you're going to join Allie and I for dinner sometime. And we're sitting down together at a restaurant. And I, Allie or myself says something and both of us start laughing suddenly. And you two are just saying, what the heck are they laughing about? They didn't make a joke or anything. But what's happened is one of us has said something that's kind of like a cold word that triggers a funny yeah. memory for us. You ought to understand yeah. it, but we understand the context behind it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Now, you also say in here that one of the shocking things to me, people, is maybe, just maybe, you know, the Genesis account isn't written from a scientific perspective. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 uh, I, I think what, what I said earlier is relevant here, that is, uh, science is interested in questions like how did human beings um, uh, emerge? Mm-hmm. How did human beings, what, what's the origin of human beings? The Bible's interested in saying the origin of human beings is through God's divine act, but it's not interested in telling us, you know, um, how, how, God did it, and so we could, in my opinion, we could turn to science with, uh, with, without feeling any kind of threat and say, well, what is science, which is studying, you know, nature, what is it telling us? It doesn't mean that science is necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my point isn't that we ought to believe whatever scientists tell us. Mm-hmm. It's, we shouldn't be threatened by what scientists tell us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and here I'd like to remind people of what another classic reformed confession, namely the Belgic Confession, talks about how there are, that there are really two books, that God speaks to us through his word and he speaks to us through nature. And when those two are properly interpreted, they will never conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and, and so sometimes, sometimes science can help us read the Bible better, as was illustrated by the Galileo episode, when, um, you know, Galileo was a Confirming the idea based on scientific information that he had that the Earth was not the center of the solar system. And so he challenged the interpretation of the Bible that said that the Bible taught that the Earth is the center of the solar system. And, um, and, and so, um, you know, when some people said Galileo's, uh, 
heretic. He is out of keeping with the Bible. Uh, there were people in the church, by the way, who supported Galileo, and there were mm-hmm. people outside the church who were against Galileo. So it's not a simple Christians versus scientists issue. Uh, but um, And Galileo himself was uh, Christian, from what we can see. And um, But when people went back to read the Bible over time, they saw, they said, well, really, the Bible doesn't teach that the Earth's the center of the solar system. It's talking from a kind of figurative, phenomenological perspective when it says the sun rises and the sun sets, or when it says in the Psalms that the Earth will not be moved. It's not talking about a physical reality. It's talking about the fact that God has given the Earth stability, um, and it isn't going to fall into complete chaos at any moment. So, um, so that's a early example of how you had a science versus faith controversy that um, that most, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of Christians today will. When, when somebody says the Earth's not the center of the solar system, they'll say, yeah, of course it's not. And, it, and they don't think it challenges the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, actually, that may be what is going to happen over the next couple hundred years or so when it comes to um, evolution and the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the trend is in that direction. <laughs> You know, there, there is this author I know, but I'm not sure if you quoted him in your book or not, because it's been a while since I've read it. But he said something along the lines of one of the worst things that can happen is for people who to assert things that they say that our scriptures teach that the educated people of the world know contradict the knowledge of our time, the science of our time. And such people won't yeah. even bother to listen to us because they're, they're saying that things that they obviously know are false and say, and that's what our books teach. Now, some people will say, okay, who are you quoting? Um, William Lane Craig or someone else? Like that? No, no. That's actually from St. Augustine about 1,600 yeah. years ago. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of wisdom St. Augustine on this topic, because he understood that uh, the Bible wasn't giving a plain sense description of how creation took place. Mm-hmm. And uh, and actually, as you look at it, it's really a more modern idea that Genesis 1 and 2 is a kind of um, non-figurative depiction of creation. Some young Earth creationists will try to give you the impression that people like John and me are really just responding to science and reading the Bible in a way that no Christian has ever read it before, and uh, that's just historically incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, that that even right after Charles Darwin published many. Um, many Christian leaders uh, were comfortable with the idea of evolution as long as it was 
understood as God's act of providence, that God created human beings and that the evolutionary process was guided by God. He was involved in terms of his providence. Um, B.B. Warfield's an example mm-hmm. of that. Mr. Inerrancy himself. I know. He's, he's the, often called the father or the architect of the modern doctrine of inerrancy. And, uh, and you know, that's not to say he was an evolutionary creationist himself, but mm-hmm. he said, look, if, if we understand God as involved in the, uh, in, in the evolutionary process, then there's really no serious threat to our doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. I always take the stance on this, so I say, I'm not a scientist, so if you ask me about if evolution is true, I say, I can't tell you that, but it doesn't change my interpretation. If I woke up tomorrow and saw a headline, National Academy of Sciences says evolution is junk science, I'd say, cool, and move on. If I saw and said Southern Baptist Convention says, okay, okay, we can see macroevolution as a part, I'd say, cool, and move on. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, it's not because the Bible doesn't teach evolution, mm-hmm. it, it, but it doesn't, uh, but the theory of evolution doesn't threaten the Bible. And um, so I agree with you that if tomorrow, uh, you know, which I am fairly confident that this is not going to happen, that scientists will mm-hmm. abandon the theory of evolution then um, then it's not going to change my viewpoint on Genesis mm-hmm. 1 and 2, which is it's Genesis 1 and 2 just isn't teaching about uh, how God did it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not a scientist either, but because of the fact that I've been involved in science-based uh, discussions, I've done, uh, you know, for an for a non-scientist, I've done a lot of reading. I have good friends and others that I talk to about about these issues. Christian biologists like Jeff Schloss and Dennis Venema and uh, Daryl uh, Falk and Francis Collins. And, uh, and I also, yeah, so I talk to them about these issues, and they're very confident in the theory of evolution um and, and and by the way when you hear people saying oh darwinism is threatened or is in doubt i don't know where they're getting that information because because um because biologists aren't saying that um i i've seen that recently in a book edited by Wayne Grudem and others called uh, Theistic Evolution, which is a big, massive, thousand-page critique mm-hmm. of this. And, uh, you know, I read what some of these uh, contributors are saying, and it just doesn't conform to the reality in the scientific community, including Christian biologists. It just, it just I don't, you know, again, I think part of the problem is uh, they're not we- reading widely enough. <laughs> At least they're not citing those kind of studies. So, um, so I, I, I think they're 
if I might coin a phrase, not coin a phrase, but I shouldn't use this phrase, but they're giving fake news. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we could we could talk about this for a bit, but I'll just tell okay. people, we got some shows on this. I did interview the authors of how I, or rather the editors of how I changed my mind on evolution, which you contributed to. Oh, right. And yeah. I've had Ted Cabal on talking about a book he co-wrote, Controversy of the Ages. And recently yeah. we had Ken Keefley, I believe it is, along with Fuzz Rana and J.B. Stump on talk about creation or evolution. Do we have to choose? I might not have a title. It's right off perfectly in my memory, but you can find them on the archives. Now let's yeah, move on. All, all good, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good now, people. Now let's move on here because some people, even some Christians, will say, you know, maybe though the flood didn't happen. Maybe it's just a good story that's meant to teach us a lesson. It's kind of like a parable of Jesus. It, what do you think about that? No, I, 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 I don't think that's the right way to think about it, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, John and I strongly believe that there is a historical reference behind the flood. It's not just a pure work of fiction uh, that is, uh, has a theological message to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, John and I characterize in our book um, Genesis 1 to 11 as theological history, like the whole book of Genesis, like you know, Genesis through Esther, it is talking about real events that happen in space and time. Um, it's theological history because it's not just giving the account of the past for, um, you know, for antiquarian purposes, just to memorialize them but it's talking about the past in a way to talk about God's involvement in the past and our relationship to God. So it's Mm -hmm. theological in that sense. But uh, our point that we make about Genesis 1 to 11, what makes Genesis 1 to 11 uh, different from, say, Genesis 12 and following is that this deep, deep past is, talking about real events, but describing them using figurative language. So there, there is a, you know, so again, in Gen- when we talk about Genesis 1 and 2, we say, yeah, God created everything, including uh, human beings, but it uses figurative language like days without sun, moon, and stars, that's mm-hmm. obviously a figurative language for God, who is a spirit breathing with his breath on dust, where, of course, God being a spirit doesn't have lungs. Um, and, and we could go on and on there. So, mm-hmm. so our basic thesis about uh, Genesis 6 through 9 is, yeah, there was a particularly devastating flood that really impressed itself on the minds of humans who witnessed and survived it. And that flood became a vehicle to talk about the nature of God uh, and our relationship with him. And, uh, but it's 
described figuratively, primarily through the figure of hyperbole, in order to make those theological points. So a particularly devastating regional flood is being described as a worldwide flood in order to teach about God, human sin, God's judgment, and God's grace. You know, this is an apologetics podcast, after all. There can be a great danger, I think, for some of us, that we can be so caught up in defending the historicity of a flood, or dare I say anything else in the Bible, Old or New Testament, and missing the theological significance of it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, um, I, I, let me again say, I do think it's important to recognize that there is a historical background to the flood, but I also uh, think that when you so focus in on trying to prove, say, that a worldwide flood happened using very suspect scientific arguments, uh, you don't really bring honor to the word. You actually uh, undermined it in the way that Augustine talked about the mm-hmm. fact that it brings ridicule to the gospel. Now, you uh, talk about how it uses strong language, like rhetorical language, which is one of your propositions to make a, a regional flood a worldwide flood. Now, some people say, well, aren't you trying to move away from the plain sense of Scripture, what the text clearly says? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not um, uh, uh, at all. Mm. Uh, I, I would argue strongly that I'm interpreting the text literally in terms of when literal is understood as reading it according to the way that the original authors wanted us to read it, which is to under to recognize figurative language when they're using it. Mm-hmm. So I want to read I want to read Genesis six through nine like the author intended us to understand it, and as the original audience would have understood it. Uh, So I think I'm actually offering the plain sense meaning of the text. Uh, Mm. Now at our, yeah, so uh, as opposed to a more, um, a more uh, wooden reading that doesn't recognize figurative language in the depiction of the flood. And now there are plenty of Christians out there who are going to say, look, but this is what the text says. And don't you think if God wanted to get his message to us, he would have been clear about what he said? And I would say he is clear about what he said. <laughs> uh, when, you, uh, when you read it, uh, again, remember, remember what we said earlier, Nick, about the fact yeah. that Bible wasn't written to us. Mm-hmm. We, it, it, it was it, so we have to understand it in its ancient context before we bring its important message to our lives today. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so we have to understand the nature of the type of literature that we're reading, or we will misconstrue it. Uh, so let's not read it as if it were written in the 21st century or um, 
uh, as if it intends to give us a literal de description here. Or a uh, plain sense description here. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Now, some people could be surprised to hear the Bible does use hyperbolic language to describe even things that we would think are commonplace. Like, for instance, you already described in the book that Noah's Ark, the depictions of its size and such is probably hyperbolic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so as you uh, look at the dimensions of the Ark mm. and you compare it to any wooden boat built in the antiquity, but even in up until today, mm -hmm. uh, there's been no boat ever built, wooden boat ever built to those dimensions um, that has actually been put in the sea, because uh, of course Ken Ham built a replica of the ark on uh, in Kentucky. But notice all the st the steel girders holding it up, and they use all kinds of modern technology to build that replica of the ark. Um, it it it's pretty clear that this is a hyperbolic boat, um, and there's all kinds of other hyperbole. Uh, throughout Genesis 6 through 9, and I just encourage all of our listeners to read through Genesis 6 through 9 and notice all the use of all and every in the passage. And then also say that uh, that hyperbole is used elsewhere in Scripture as well, even outside of Genesis 1 through 11. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you read Genesis, Joshua 1 through 12 about the conquest, and just read Joshua 1 through 12. When you come to the end of Joshua 12, you will have the impression that Joshua and the Israelites completely took the land of Canaan. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you read Joshua 13 to 24, as the land is being distributed to the different tribes, you see that there's lots of land that remains under the control of the Canaanites. Indeed, if you study it closely, you see it's about 50-50 at the end of the conquest. So then you come to Judges 1, and you see that after the death of Joshua, the Israelites still have to remove Canaanites from the land, and they're never totally successful, at least, to, uh, at least till the time of David. But the point is that Joshua 1 through 12 is using hyperbole because it's celebrating the beginning of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise of land. It's not trying to pull wool over our eyes, uh, but it is, you know, dwelling on the victory in those chapters before in 13 to 24, uh, also letting us know that there are lots of Canaanites that are left. So hyperbole can be used for theological purposes. And earlier I referenced the um, evangelical Chicago statement on inerrancy. Uh, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but I cite in the book uh, that statement where it says hyperbole does not undermine the doctrine of inerrancy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to use a kind of homespun example, you know, when I'm traveling with my wife, Alice, 
And for some reason, she picks up my suitcase and she turns to me and says, your suitcase weighs a ton. I don't say to her, honey, you are in error. You are <laughs> totally wrong. Uh, you, you know, it can't weigh any more than 90 pounds. Mm-hmm. I have books in there because I'm an Old Testament professor. It's nowhere near a ton. Mm-hmm. No, the fact that my wife says you're, I understand that my wife says when she says your suitcase weighs a ton, she's not making a, a sort of a literal claim of truth that it weighs, what, what's a ton? 2,000 pounds? Or yep, 2,000 pounds. pounds. <laughs> yeah, 2,000 pounds. No, she's not saying that. Uh, but I know what she means. Mm-hmm. So, um, so hyperbole doesn't mean uh, isn't a inherent falsehood. Mm-hmm. Now, something else we have to understand about the world of the flood. Now, I argue many times. Yes, I know I'm probably a masochist for doing this. I argue many times with Jesus mythicists. And one of the things they'll say is, look, there's all these stories of dying and rising gods all over the world at that time, such, which isn't accurate. But yeah. there are many stories of floods in the ancient world, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there were some in the ancient world that were contemporary with Israel, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Um, yeah, so the most famous ones, of course, are coming from Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. from ancient Sumer and then Babylon, and probably the most famous of all the flood stories is the Gilgamesh epic mm-hmm. uh, in Babylon. And, yeah, so um, so my view on that is, yeah, there was this large regional flood that that impressed itself on the minds of ancient human beings that became a vehicle for their uh, theology. So the Babylon, I, you know, in our book, we don't speculate um, on whether the Israelites had any knowledge of the Babylonian account or the Babylonians had a knowledge of the Israelite account. They could, um, they could conceivably both develop independently uh, but, um, but yeah, so, um, so I don't take the, um, many accounts of floods that are from around the world as some kind of argument in favor of a worldwide flood, but rather many of the flood stories are influenced by the biblical or ancient Near Eastern account or are just reflections of local floods. So, yeah. Now, one of the things you stress that we need to consider is that, yes, there are many accounts, but they do have some important differences, and these are largely theological differences. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are tremendous theological differences, say, between the Babylonian account and the Israelite account. Mm -hmm. Uh, completely different understandings of the nature of God. Mm -hmm. And I I think, you know, especially uh, 
anybody can read those two accounts and see that while there are some similarities, some of them striking, that the differences in terms of the conception of the divine realm are totally um, radically different. Yeah, I think one of the things you see in many of the pagan accounts, if you can call them that, Thomas, for instance, the gods create man because they want some extra servants who would do the work because they yeah. don't want to do it themselves. And then they say, hey, we got to do something because man's too noisy and we're trying to catch up on our beauty sleep. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, and then there's even conflict among the gods where, you know, the god Enlil, the one who in the Babylon, in the Gilgamesh epic who wants to bring the flood because they're making too much noise, but the wisdom god Ea knows this is a bad idea, so uh, he lets one of his worshippers know and tells him to build an ark, and yeah, so there's conflict among the gods uh, and and a non-moral reason for flood in the first place. Yeah, so so there, so while there are some uh, or even a number of surface similarities, uh, there are radical differences in terms of theological uh, conception. So how does Yahweh compare to these other deities? Well, uh, uh, first of all, <laughs> Yahweh is the only deity. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, Yahweh is, because he's the only deity, he is all-powerful, he is sovereign, he is uh, without rivals, he is, he is, uh, God who who is you know renders judgment on moral grounds not because he is irritated for one reason or another uh, by his human creatures the human you know God creates human beings uh, not just to be his uh, you know to uh, to do the menial tasks that the lesser gods don't want to do, but but uh, creates them with dignity. Um, I mean, it's just a, a completely and radically different conception of God. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's hard to think that that I mean the Israelite conception, the Israelites' understanding of God is so radically different from anyone else in their environment that it's hard to believe that it came about through any other means than through divine revelation. <laughs> mm -hmm. That, um, yeah. Uh, so, I think that's something so amazing today because in the ancient world, Polytheism was taken for granted because, I mean, look at all these different things going on and such. It, that's what makes sense. It's warring gods. And yet, today, if I get into an argument with an atheist, it's kind of where taking, it's either there's one god or no god. Polytheism is no longer a serious contender for most of us. Yeah, that, that is true. That is true. Though you do have some uh, scholars who don't think polytheism is true, but also think that polytheism is better than monotheism because polytheism at least allows for a certain amount of 
tolerance. If there are many gods, then you can have your god. My god may be better than your god, but but um, but that's of course because um, some people have perverted monotheism into a kind of incredible intolerance toward others. Mm-hmm. Not that we should just all agree with each other, but uh, we shouldn't say my God is the true God and your God is is a wrong God and therefore you have no rights or you have no even right to life. Mm-hmm. So so I, I think that's one of the reasons why some of the new atheists are rebelling against monotheistic religions, which is unfortunate because it certainly doesn't capture the spirit of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to People Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. My guest is Dr. Trimple Longman III. We're talking about the book he co-authored with John Barton, The Lost World of the Flood. But if you're here next week, we're going to be talking about cults. How do you talk to people in cults? How do you reason with them? What can we learn about them? My, my guest is going to be Jason Oakes, talking about his book, Sharing Jesus with the Cults. But for now, let's get back to Dr. Longman talking about this book. Now, the next proposition, I want to get to the Proposition 9. A local cataclysmic flood is intentionally described as a global flood for rhetorical purposes and theological reasons. Because, I mean, you're going to see some people say, well, the Bible describes it as a worldwide flood. Therefore, it is a worldwide flood. So, there you <laughs> go. It's, it's, a, it's an open and shut case, isn't it? Uh, no, it's not, because such a, a response would not recognize that the Bible is intentionally using hyperbole to describe a massive regional flood as a worldwide flood in order to make the theological points. Mm-hmm. So again, we have to get we have to we have to get a little bit more savvy about our reading of scripture and understand that A, it's ancient literature. B we have to understand what the original author was trying to communicate by understanding the nature of the literature that that ancient author is employing in order to talk to uh, their audience and uh, and so forth. It's um, it's it's not as uh, let, let, let's. <laughs> Of course, we'll disagree about uh, the book of Revelation also. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm just starting to write a commentary on Revelation for Kriegel. Uh, but, but most people who read the book of Revelation recognize, A, that, um, that though it is also talking about uh, past events and contemporary events at the time of the writing of Revelation. It's also talking about the um, the future when Jesus is going to come again, and and most people, not everybody, recognizes that Revelation describes that future event of Christ returning again using figurative language. In other words, Jesus is coming back again, 
bed. Is he going to be literally or, you know, it, that literature describes Jesus as coming back riding a cloud? Mm-hmm. Is, does that mean that it's saying that Jesus will actually ride a cloud when he returns? Well, if so, then turn to Revelation 19, where it says he'll be riding a white horse. Mm-hmm. Well, does that mean cloud will look like a horse? No. These are figurative depictions of a future actual event. So I think there's the, the, the reason why I think talking about Revelation is relevant at this moment is because while Revelation is talking about the, the, the distant future, we don't know how distant, but it was at least 2,000 years distant from the time of the writer of Revelation, uh, Genesis 1 to 11 is talking about the deep past. And so my point would be that in Genesis 1 to 11, when it's talking about the deep past, and in Revelation when it's talking about the far distant future, it describes those actual events using figurative language. They're actual events, but they're being described using figurative language. Mm-hmm. And so, so, um, so that would be my point about Genesis 6 to 9, that it is talking about an actual event, but it's using figurative language in order to teach us something about the nature of God and our relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And for anyone interested, we have done some shows on the book of Revelation. Some of the most interesting ones have been with Brian Godawa arguing about from a perspective that I happen to hold, the Orthodox Preterist perspective. So if you're interested in that, just go back to our archives. You can find them there. And now, Proposition 10, I think, could be one of the most important ones here because we read the flood often, and it seems like we, we often forget the flood happened at a specific time in a specific place for a specific reason. And that it's not just Genesis 6, 6 through 9, it's Genesis 1 through 5 before and 10 through 11 afterwards. Like this plays a part in the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, was there a question there, uh, Nick? Yeah, I was wondering, could you kind of expand on, on this, like how you think we should be reading it in live whole story? How does it fit? What, what's the offer trying to get to us oh. there? Oh, sure. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so, so Genesis 6 through 9 fits into the context of the whole uh, account mm-hmm. of Genesis 1 to 11 uh, in the following way. Mm-hmm. So Genesis 1 and 2 talks about creation, of course, and it talks about how God uh, brings into being uh, humans who are morally innocent and capable of moral choice. And uh, and then Genesis 3 gives, in my opinion, a figurative depiction of humans' rebellion against uh, God. Mm-hmm. I think that the, what we call the fall is a historical reality mm-hmm. um, in that it's telling us there was a time when human beings who are endowed with the status of, of being God's image bearers 
and who are given the commission of subduing the creation, ruling over and subduing the creation, uh, that they rebelled against God, and that, as Paul later will describe at Romans 5, 12 and following, introduces sin and death into the world. So there is a historical fall, uh, and that, that sin, uh, that first sin, that original sin, uh, does affect uh, later generations, including us, in that, you know, uh, it represents what we would all do in those, in that situation, and also so disrupts the cosmic and social systems that it's impossible not to sin. So, um, so, so at that point, of course, uh, God judges Adam and Eve, who represent uh, the first humans who are created who are given the status of image bearers. Um, and he, uh, but he also uh, extends to them a token of grace in giving them clothing. And so, so Genesis 3 is teaching us that humans are sinners, that God judges sin, but that God is giving up on his human creatures but will now pursue him for pursue them for reconciliation. That's the token of grace. Uh-huh. And so what you, what you now have in the other stories, including the flood in Genesis four through eleven, are accounts of human sin, God's judgment, and God extending grace to uh, these human beings. And so. Um, so, so, um, the flood fits in there because it fits into this pattern. Of course, it's not just about some individual sin, but a massive generational sin, mm-hmm. um, and that, um, God determines to judge them by bringing a flood and that, um, he does do that. But he also extends a token of grace to them by allowing Noah and his family to survive the flood. He doesn't completely, uh, you know, obliterate humanity. But Noah, is, Noah and his family are the token of grace that continues, uh, that allows God to continue to pursue humans in order to reconcile with them in spite of the fact that they are sinners. Mm-hmm. You also have something in here, a bit of an excursus on a separate topic pops up, and that's the genealogies. And some of those genealogies can be pretty confusing because it looks like people live a really, really long time. And even when we get to Moses living 120 years and Joseph 110 years, and a lot of people get to this point by and say, um, how how am I supposed to defend this? Did people really live like nine hundred years or so? Yeah. Um, again, I would appeal to a couple things that 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 are relevant as we've seen for understanding Genesis one to eleven. One is first of all understand the type of literature in its ancient context. Genealogies mm-hmm. are not like modern genealogies. 
if you study ancient genealogies, you'll see they they aren't even always uh, historically based. Uh, they are making other points, uh, which we would call in the Bible theological points. And uh, number two, always study the Old Testament in the light of the broader ancient Near East. And when you do that, when it comes to the genealogies in, say, Genesis uh, 4 and 5, particularly 5, you think of the Sumerian king list, mm-hmm. which is uh, ancient genealogy, which has kings who reign for massively long reigns. Um, and then... Um, and, and, and so those are a couple of the relevant issues. Uh, don't impose modern expectation on ancient literature. Uh, read genealogies in the light of ancient genealogies. Again, the Bible wasn't written to us, it was written for us. And when you do that, then you understand, as we've been talking about, again, about Genesis 1 to 11 as a whole, that it's talking mm-hmm. about uh, real events, but using figurative language. And again, in terms of the uh, lifespans, I think we're dealing with hyperbole there. And and one of the points that it's making is that time continues after that first sin. Human life, you know, it has an effect on on the quality and extent of human life. So, um, so sin is having its effect, we read in Genesis 5. Mm-hmm. But it would be a mistake to take it as kind of a straightforward claim that people live for mm-hmm. centuries uh, in antiquity, for which we, uh, yeah, which would conflict with everything we know about uh, you know, through paleontology and archaeology. If I'm correct, if we even looked at something like, say, the ancient Sumerian kings, that the people in Genesis, they would look like Yudhams by comparison to them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about people who have reigns for 36,000 years and more Mm -hmm. uh, in Sumerian king list. And and the Sumerian king list is relevant here. The Sumerian king list mentions the flood. I think there are ten kings who reign before the flood and others who reign after the flood. Um, so, so yeah. So the Sumerian king list is a relevant text to to know about when you're looking at those uh, genealogies in Genesis five. Mm-hmm. Now, I do know there are some people who say that maybe one of the ways to read the text in Genesis 5 is that we often go with a 10-based system. Some cultures went with yeah. a 6-based system. What do you yeah. think about that? Well, I, I think that, uh, the, first of all, that's absolutely true. Uh, the ancient Sumerians had a system based on 6 as well as a system based on 10. Um, unfortunately, that, that's more relevant, I think, for the understanding of the Sumerian king list than it is for Genesis 5, uh, where, where that, 
isn't consistently relevant for our understanding of Genesis 5. You know, for all the details, um, uh, first of all, John did a really good, um, you know, he, he wrote this five volume Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds mm-hmm. com- commentary, and he did the Genesis commentary uh, talking about the ancient Near Eastern background to Genesis. And he goes into great detail on that. And, and I, I was dependent on that. I did a Genesis commentary in 2016 in the story of God commentary series where, where I pick up on a lot of what John says there as well. So if listeners want to follow up on details, they might want to go to those two places. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, another section that's pretty confusing to a lot of people to read is early on in Genesis 6 where it says, talks about how the sons of God were, yeah. were there in the time, but yeah. Nephilim and such. And people are wondering, okay, what's going on? Or uh, is this just referring to people from the godly line of Seth? Are these angels taking human form and having sex with humans? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, so remember that some parts of Scripture are very clear. Other parts of Scripture are are less clear. And some parts of Scripture are very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think Genesis 6, one and following is among the most difficult for a modern reader to understand. I suspect that the ancient reader would have been more, uh, again, talking about uh, high context. I think this is a very high context passage. That said, um, there are a number of different theories out there about the details, but the one thing that is clear in this passage is that somebody, one group is having uh, marital sexual relationships with another group uh, that is transgressing a boundary. So there's some serious transgression going on here. Um, Personally, I think the most likely interpretation is the so-called angelic interpretation Mm -hmm. because God is used to refer to angels in other parts of scripture. Uh, The possibility that angelic beings are having relationships with human women would explain the rather uh, prodigious nature of the offspring that they have. Uh, I will also say that this is the way that early Jewish readers understood the text, uh, as you can see from intertestamental literature. And it also seems to be the way the New Testament book of Jude understands Genesis 6, when it talks about how angels left their natural habitation as an example. Uh, Jude, Jude, that little book before the book of Revelation, by mm-hmm. Jesus is castigating the false teachers of his day and comparing them to um, Old Testament examples where there have been serious sexual transgressions, and um, it refers to Sodom and Gomorrah, 
and then it refers to these angels who left their natural habitation. Seems pretty, pretty clear that he's thinking of Genesis 6 at that point. Uh, and so for that reason, I lean toward that understanding, though I also know that there are some questions you can raise about that interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of them I would say shouldn't be the idea that angels couldn't have that type of relationship with women because um, uh, based on what um, you know Jesus said to a group of Jewish leaders when he said that um, angels it, you know that when he says to the Sadducees who are doubting the resurrection from the dead when they try to Jesus's position by saying, well, that woman had five husbands. Who will be your husband in heaven? And he responds by saying, no, there will be no giving or taking of marriage in heaven, but they'll be like the angels. In he- they'll be like the angels, as if that means that angels are necessarily and inherently non-sexual beings, um, which is a very platonic understanding of spiritual realities and spiritual beings like angels um so so i so that's a long way of saying uh there is something that's clear in genesis 6 that there's some transgression going on here which is an illustration that's being used as the kind of egregious evil that's going on before the flood um and my own opinion is the best interpretation is the angelic interpretation. So I'm unwilling to say that dogmatically. I've had a number of people tell me I need to have Michael Heiser on my show. It's also oh, right. Testament yeah. Star. And yes, people, yeah. if you're listening, that is coming up. We're scheduled for, I believe, August 11th of this year. And his idea of the Nephilim, and such. I'm guessing you'd probably agree with him then, wouldn't you? I've, yeah, I've read his good book, and I recommend his book and mm-hmm. uh, to to your listeners. Um, and and I largely share his views on these kind of subjects. Mm-hmm. Well, for the listeners, I can say I haven't come to any firm conclusion on that. I agree, it's a difficult text, and such to understand. But something that we could be about is if this flood takes place and supposedly everyone dies, then how come we see figures described as Nephilim showing up in, I believe, even the Book of Numbers, and some people think Goliath is part of this race of people? Yeah, yeah, there is a way, if you do, I uh, think that there was a actual worldwide flood, there is a way of thinking about that, that that the Nephilim who are mentioned, I think, in numbers aren't genetically related to the Nephilim, but that the Israelites give that later mm-hmm. uh, type of giants that name based on the tradition of the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. But I agree with, I mean, there is a way around that argument, but I, I still agree with you. Find podcasts, videos, articles, and more at deeperwatersapologetics.com.
You're listening to the Deeper Warner's Podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported by people like you, and, you know, we very could use your support. I mean, as you've heard in the last episode, my wife and I recently had the tragedy happening of both of us being in a major car accident, which sadly was my fault, and we do have a car now, thanks to her parents, but, you know, when things like this happen, we really need that support. So if you want to support us, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com and there's a link there. It says help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now you click on that link and you get taken to the page of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, yes you have. Mike and Debbie Lacona are my in-laws. You make a donation and then you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or my wife, Ari, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation. It will be tax deductible. And it's very important that you do that because if you just make a donation, you don't tell anyone, it's going to be assumed to be a risen Jesus donation. And you can also go buy books that I've written in, or co-written. Written would be a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. Co-written are books like Defining Inerrancy, which I think is certainly relevant to what we're talking about today. God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers to Risk Generation's Questions, Godless. And another one that's recently come out is the Mention of Ours Project, Five Christian Apologists Answer 40 Atheist Questions. I was a contributor to that, one of the five apologists. I'm biased, but I think it's an excellent work. And... I encourage you all to go there and check that out. And there's yet another way to support us, and that's jewelry. Now, guys, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but women tend to like jewelry. Have you noticed that, Dr. Longman? Yeah, I yeah. sure have. Well, we have a jewelry store, actually. One of the, a friend of People Waters runs, the pre, runs a premier jewelry store. So you can go and you can buy some jewelry, and whatever you buy... If you mention it through us and such, and I'll help you if you need some help, 25% of whatever you buy goes to Deeper Waters. That's a great way you can support us. So, guys, get something special for your wife or your girlfriend, whoever it is. And, like I say, you can buy something special about a lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or, you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And uh, if you can't do any of these and you still want to support us, tell some people about the Deeper Waters podcast, but also go on iTunes and leave a positive review. I check pretty often, and I love seeing new reviews. They're always so great to see. I'm, I'm so thankful you guys are giving this show such positive ratings. Now, Dr. Longman, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, I I would just uh, encourage people to donate to your organization. I think it's great when you uh, hearing all your shows and and uh, the people that you're interviewing. I think it's well worth supporting. I appreciate that greatly, and yeah, I do try to get the best on here. And sometimes people ask me, "How do you get all those great people on your show and such?" And I tell them it's a really complicated process. I email them and ask them if they'd like to come on. That's so all I did with Dr. Longman here is that, hey, would you like come on my show? And we got it arranged. So the, the main work is just getting the books and reading it. 
and then I do the interview, and my sound guy does all his magic after that. So, that's what it takes to do this show here. Now, let's get back to your book here. And this, the 11th proposition is that the theological history is focused on the issue of divine presence, the establishment of order, and how order is undermined. And uh, if you've read any of the Lost Worlds before, you can see a lot of uh, John Walton there in that, because that's his big thing. I mean, I just recently finished reading his Old Testament theology for Christians, and he says the theme of the Old Testament is presence. So how does all this take play, play out in the, the flood account? Yeah, um, well, certainly... Um, John is right to use the categories of uh, order and disorder and reorder um, as relevant to the flood story because, of course, when you read Genesis 1, uh, where God begins with a uh, uh, a cosmos which is tohu wabohu or formless and void it begins with disorder and then god through his creation brings uh, that disorder into a functional order so that his human creatures can flourish in it uh, and then sin when sin's introduced into the world it creates disorder. It, it reverses the good work of creation. And so when uh, sin gets to the point that the world is uh, dramatically disordered, God basically takes it all the way and reverts it to that tohu wa bohu, um, which is the Hebrew phrase, uh, you know, something like uh, empty and void or uh, formless and void, and uh, and kind of reverses the creation order, and then um, and then and then after the flood, it is recreated. So uh, so those categories are very relevant. I have to admit that this is one of the areas in which John and I had to have a little bit of give and take. Uh, because um, I wanted to insist that that the ethical categories of um, the ethical categories of sin and judgment are relevant here. That uh, and that to me, order and disorder, while relevant and helpful, are a little bit uh, too non-ethical. And so as John and I talked about it, we came to an agreement, but we also agreed to write two different chapters uh, where I took the lead on the one that talked about the pattern of, of sin, judgment, and grace. And uh, John wrote the one on sin and this, and, but we, we don't disagree with each other. We would just uh, put the emphasis and maybe use slightly different language. Mm. And now when we talk about order and disorder, some people say, well, is that pretty much like the same as good and evil or what? 
Yeah, it it doesn't necessarily have to be the same, but when it when the disorder arises because of sin, then I think we are dealing with ethical categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so, so yeah, I, I tend to read Genesis 1 and 11 with those ethical categories of good and evil, uh, a little bit more than John typically does. But again, when, when we talked it out and this is what sometimes happens when you co-author a book with somebody and I've co-authored books with other people as well you have to kind of you run into areas where you may disagree but then as you talk about it um you both kind of uh you you influence each other while you're writing them Mm -hmm. so so when you talk about the flood coming and kind of swimming the example i can think of is I mean, before the show, we had a hard time getting started because I was having so many computer problems. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to shut down Chrome and start all over again. (laughs) Is that kind of what God was doing? Is he kind of rebooting (laughs) creation? (laughs) Yeah, I think think that 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 might be a helpful analogy, even if, like all analogies, it isn't perfect. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's true. And... Uh, but what's interesting, too, is, at least as you read the end of Genesis 9, you see that once God reboots creation, it, it starts messing up again <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly. And um, at this point, God uh, determines not to destroy the world again, but to... Um, to keep stability in the world, and but as he continues to reach out to human beings in order to uh, to reconcile himself with humans, and eventually, of course, this is going to bring us to the work of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think something we can get then also with the flood is that, and this is something you get in Proposition Twelve, is about how. Cain and Abel is stage one, then the Nephilim is stage two, and that's that God takes sin seriously because it seems like things are getting worse and worse. I mean, you talk about Cain, he murders someone, and then Lamech later on says, yeah, I killed a man for some minor reason and such. Yeah, go ahead. Let God try and judge me for that one, okay? Yeah, right. Well, you're right. I mean, I... I don't think it's just a matter of repetition of sin. I think it's an intensification mm-hmm. of sin uh, as you move, particularly to the flood story. Mm-hmm. And so, so eventually, I mean, Genesis one to eleven, uh, while really for appropriate reasons catching our attention these days, is really uh, sort of the background story to the real story of Genesis, which is the call of Abraham, (laughs) you know, and so, um, so as, um, you know, as humans show themselves to be persistent sinners and God determined to judge, but God also unwilling to give up on his human creatures, this will eventually lead to the call of Abraham um, in order that he could leave his country and go to the land God would show him and that 
God would make him a great nation and well, he would bless Abraham and his descendants, but, uh, but ultimately the, uh, um, to bless all the families of the nations. So, mm-hmm. so, so uh, Genesis 1 to 11 provides the backstory to Genesis, the rest of Genesis, which of course provides the backstory to the story of the Exodus in the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. And this is also going back to talking about the other deities and such. I mean, it's just quite a difference because the other deities just tend to see humankind as a nuisance and such. We're not dealing with a sin problem, but God is dealing with a sin problem. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. He's he's dealing with a sin problem. Um, he 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 looks on his human creatures as his creatures, but they're creatures who have a God-given dignity as mm-hmm. opposed to the ancient Near Eastern idea that humans are inherently evil from the start and are just really there to do the menial tasks that the gods don't want to do and, and also to supply them with food through their sacrifices. And so, um, so again, that, those are other examples of the radical difference between uh, the Old Testament's conception of God and the broader ancient Near Eastern conception. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some, some people who will say that, and this is a chapter I know that you didn't personally contribute to, but it is in there, say that there's some evidence, though, isn't there, that there was a global flood in sense of a literal, the whole planet was, in fact, covered with water. Do you have a chapter on there from a ge- geologist, I believe, who wrote that one? What, what was the importance of having a chapter saying that there was no, there was really not evidence of a worldwide flood? Yeah, I think it's really important. That's why we asked Steve Mosher mm-hmm. from Wheaton College, a very experienced Christian geologist, to write a chapter that um, that points out essentially that there's no evidence for a worldwide flood, and if there were a worldwide flood, there should be such evidence. And also uh, to critique the attempts by some, uh, you know, by, by some who try to suggest that there is evidence for a worldwide flood. Now, I know a lot more about biology than I know about geology, mm-hmm. but I know enough. I know enough to to uh, to say that the position represented by Steve Mosher is the position represented not just by geologists worldwide, but by Christian geologists, mm-hmm. uh, and that. Those few um, people who write books suggesting that, say, the Grand Canyon contains evidence for uh, the flood, Um, if you know anything about geology, you see that they're really kind of twisting the the facts out there to make that case. And our point would be, you don't need to make that case in order to defend the Bible, because mm-hmm. the Bible is not insisting that there was a worldwide flood. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so, yeah, I think these uh, chapters is critical, and one that neither John nor I could write.
and is another example of saying of showing how science can sometimes help us read the Bible better or keep us from errors in terms of reading the Bible uh, because again uh, the evidence is 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 uh, the geology is is very clear that there there is no evidence of a worldwide flood and we've got to understand that mm-hmm. well, <clears throat> I was listening once to Kurt Gerald some veracity here he had my friend Ted Wright on there, and Ted's been on my show since then. And he said something on Kurt's show, but I asked him about it on my show. And that's that. Uh, now, Ted's saying he's not saying this is a real deal yet, but somewhere in the Ararat region, there has been found a large structure that looks like the remains of a boat and such. And now, what what would it mean for you all's thesis here if something, that, if something was found like that and it did turn out to be Noah's Ark? Let me just put it this way, Nick. Mm-hmm. That claim has been made for many years, many yep. different times, and always turns out to not be true. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> so what if if that happened? Then, then we would think about it. But there's, first of all, um, so many, so many um, uh, claims have been made. That have been proven to be false. That uh, that I'm very, 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 very skeptical. Mm-hmm. Very skeptical. But but again, we you know, no matter what our view is, uh, since I complain that some people who say our younger creationists have closed minds, I want to say I have an open mind. Show me show me the evidence, and um, and and have. You know, have the um, you know other scientists, even non-Christian scientists, look at the evidence and see what it says. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't been thinking about even if it was true. I don't really see how anything in your book would be damaged. I mean, just say, okay, this fits with a local flood, and this is just, just more yeah. evidence that there was a flood. So, hey, good for us. <laughs> Well, that could be the case too. I just have we would just have to see the nature of the evidence, and mm-hmm. that evidence would have to be opened up to broad examination, and, and especially that our initial reaction should be skepticism based mm-hmm. on the number of false reports that we've had in the past. Yeah, I agree entirely. In New Testament, we just had this recent hubbub going on about a prosper first century bit of mark being found and now it's looking like well that wasn't the case and I've yeah, always right. I've always told Christians like when and I even say the same thing to skeptics like when it comes to new findings in archaeology when something hits the presses do not share it immediately wait two yeah. or three years or right. so let the experts look at it because you could do embarrassment to yourself or whatever side you're cheering for that's exactly right. That's good, good, wise counsel to people. Mm-hmm. Now, there, I, I did see a friend of mine sharing something today about how all these stories around the world have taken place, talking about floods and passages, where, see, this is evidence that there was a great flood at one time, not necessarily a global flood, but, you know, there, there was a 
a big flood story in memory. In your proposition, there it says, no, that's not really the case. That, that, that means that. What's your position on it? Well, my position on it is if you look closely at those many flood stories, you'll see that they aren't necessarily related, that many of them could arise out of their own local flood accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, very few of them are talking about a worldwide flood. Um, and, and those that are maybe, um, may, may also be influenced by, again, a massive regional flood. Um, so, so I, I think that's a pretty weak argument to say that we have all these flood stories and some of the flood stories, uh, like you'll often in these lists see flood stories mentioned in American Indian accounts mm -hmm. in times after missionaries have talked to them about Noah's flood, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like some of these flood stories are derivative from knowledge about the Bible's flood story. So you have to be very careful and take a close look at those accounts before you use it as an apologetic argument. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, could it be that there is that there is enough of a memory in mankind's history of a great yeah. flood coming as judgment, and everyone has some sort of record of a story, but they just recreate it yeah. in their, their own deity stories? Yeah, no, that's also a possibility. I think there are multiple explanations for why you have different flood stories uh, mm -hmm. like that. But I think the one, but it's not a strong argument that this proves a that there was actually a worldwide flood. Mm -hmm. Now, you have another proposition at the end about the relationship between science and religion here. Science can purify religion. Religion can purify yeah. science from idolatry and false absolutes. Cause, I mean, some people look and say, look, you can't have your interpretation of Scripture be colored by this uh, secular science and such. And that, that to me, seems like a, a dangerous position to take. Yeah, I think you're right, Nick, that, that it's dangerous to say that science can't help purify religion. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked earlier about the Galileo episode. That's a good example. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like science helped us read the Bible better at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, science can't speak to metaphysical realities or theological realities, too. I mean, most scientists, even non-Christian scientists, think somebody like Richard Dawkins is crazy to say things like, since evolution is true, therefore the Bible is obvious, God doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. it, you know, so, so most scientists think Richard Dawkins, who apparently is a highly qualified scientist, ought to stay, um, stay on the topic of science mm -hmm. and, uh, and not make these kind of theological or metaphysical pronouncements. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so, and but, but think of it this way: to going back to creation for a moment. Um, I think one of the problems Christians have with the idea that scientists might be able to explain uh, the emergence of human beings who are created 
in the divine image through science, through evolutionary theory, is the fact that it removes an apologetic argument that since we can't explain X, Y, or Z by evolutionary theory, therefore God had to do it, therefore that proves the existence of God. Mm-hmm. So, and if evolution, if evolutionary theory is true, then how can we know that God exists? And my answer to that is, because the Bible tells us that God did it. Mm-hmm. You don't have, you do not have to have some phenomenon which is not able to be explained by science, uh, which deals with secondary causes, because God himself deals with secondary causes. We mm-hmm. talked earlier about providence. And at this point, I often like to remind people of the book of Esther. Mm-hmm. Read, read the book of Esther, and as you read the book of Esther, God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Mm-hmm. But read the book of Esther about the deliverance of the Jews from a possible genocide at the hands of Haman. And if you read it and you don't see that God is involved in the story, even though he's never mentioned, and you can explain everything by secondary causes, then you haven't rightly understood the book of Esther. Mm -hmm. Uh, God delivered Esther, he delivered Mordecai, he delivered the Jews at this time, even though he used secondary causes in order to deliver them. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think the book of Esther is relevant to this question of the use of providence, uh, the use of secondary causes by God, uh, which doesn't undermine the idea that God does it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's incredibly ironic because something I recently wrote on my blog and she said Esther is actually my favorite book of the Bible. It's I, yeah, I, interesting. Yeah, I, the first time I, I went to the Bible and I was just a preteen at the time and such, and I got to the book of Esther, I really could not put it down from the moment I started. It read like a great adventure and offer, and I still get that every time I read it. But yeah. I, I also think a lot of it is that we have this idea where we've got a relationship where it's either science or religion, and we have a fear that we're pulling God out of a job. And sadly, too many Christians would say, where if you ask me to choose between Jesus or science, I'll choose Jesus. And then too many skeptics say, if you ask me to choose between Jesus and science, I'll choose science, and it has to be either or. And, you know, when you talk about the existence of God, when I was in seminary, I actually did a research paper on science and religion, and I started thinking, you know, people had arguments for believing in God long before the science evolution debate came along, and they did not depend on this. Those arguments still work. I mean, I'm thinking about the Thomistic arguments especially. Those arguments still work, and they don't depend on anything scientific being found. Uh Uh-huh. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and we also have to, while we need to make those good apologetic arguments, yeah. we got to remember that ultimately uh, those can remove some barriers from belief, but ultimately 
uh, it'll be God who is working on the hearts of people who will change their, it'll be like Paul, you know, the scales fall off their eyes and now the world makes sense because they understand that God exists and so forth. The biblical, mm -hmm. they'll believe the biblical message. That doesn't mean we need to, we shouldn't give them arguments, we shouldn't present evidence and so forth, but, um, but we do need to remember that it's God's work on our hearts that makes us Christians, not the quality of our arguments. Yeah, I just always tell people that uh, you shouldn't marry your interpretation of Scripture to anything in science regardless and such, and you shouldn't marry your Christianity to anything else save the resurrection of Jesus. And, you know, if that one turns out to be false, it's okay, that's it, I'm done. But yeah. don't, don't marry Christianity to the age of the earth or your stance on evolution or anything like that. That's right. That's good advice again, Nick. I agree with you about that. Mm -hmm. So what do you ultimately hope to have happen when people pick up this book and read it? What would you like them to walk away with? That's a that's a uh, great question. What I want them to walk away with is uh, is understanding another possibility for understanding the total truthfulness of the flood story, um, and understand that it's not a choice between what the Bible says and what science says. Um, I want them to, um, to not feel that it's necessary to defend, um, a very, well, we might call it literalistic understanding of the flood story. Um, because again, you quoted Augustine earlier talking about how if you defend views of the Bible that are shown to be ridiculous in the eyes of the world. Um, you're just being ridiculed upon scripture. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, uh, also, you know, you see all these very bad reports about the number of, of young people who are abandoning the faith in college because they mm -hmm. see that they think that it's, what they learned in church or from their parents uh, about the flood or about the creation story uh, just doesn't meet the reality test when you uh, study the issues of the ancient world. And they're confronted with this, do I believe the Bible or do I believe the the my the science and and I want them to come away with that that's a false dilemma that's a false mm -hmm. choice that you have to yeah I, I just started reading just yesterday a book on this also published by InterVarsity Greg Greg Cutsono's book Mirror Science and Christian Faith because this really is a major obstacle for many young people today because again it's being framed science versus religion, and if you talk to many philosophers of science and historians of science, they would say the conflict hypothesis is a myth. 
but it's still made popular today by sadly new atheists and a lot of Christians are kissing cousins on this one. Yeah, I know. That's the irony of the thing that uh, the new atheists love very conservative Christians, uh, and they, you know, I, I I've heard secondhand that Richard Dawkins can't stand people like, say, Francis Collins, who are evolutionary creationists, because they undermine his whole argument on this subject. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the young Earth creationist view is such easy pickings for somebody like Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, Richard Dawkins is easy pickings for the young Earth creationist because he's kind of a parody of his own viewpoints. Yeah, I I do remember in Sam Harris's book, um, the end of thing was, there was probably like a a 15-page rant about Francis Collins. Do we really want someone who believes in all these miracles and such to be leading the Human Genome Project? I'm saying, well, if, if, if he's a most qualified scientist in that area, yeah, I absolutely do want him leading that. Well, that's funny because I actually saw Sam Harris on the Bill Maher show on HBO mm-hmm. right after right after Francis was uh, appointed the head of the National Institutes of Health by Obama, mm-hmm. and they were going on ranting on. I can't believe that they chose this man who doesn't believe in evolution to be the head of this. And I'm going, you don't even understand who he is. <laughs> It, it was it was ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. That's when I stopped watching Bill Maher, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Which I, I could have stopped before then. <laughs> I, 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 I feel your pain, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I know I can totally undermine so many atheists when they come to me and they, they'll give me all this stuff about young earth, global flood and such. And I'll say, look, right here, let's do our debate this way. I'm going to grant you evolution just for the sake of our argument. Now, please give me your real argument against theism, okay? And some yeah, men, right, they, right. They, they have no idea what to say at that point because they've gotten yeah. used to it's either evolution or God. And, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hey, that's, I'm going to have to try that. On, I, I mean, I have to take that approach myself <laughs> in the future. Thanks for that, Nick. No problem. Glad to do it. But we're getting close to the end of our time here. I don't think there's really much time to get into another discussion here. But I'll say the book, I'm, right now, as the time of recording, checking on Amazon, the paperback version is fourteen twenty-two. The Kindle is thirteen fifty-one. It's The Lost World of a Flood by Trimple Longman and John Barton. Now, uh, Dr. Longman, do you have a... a blog and email website a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more um actually i I don't have a blog myself but my email is uh longman at westmont.edu so um, if people have questions or comments let me say keep them civil but uh (laughs) but feel free to to email me so questions and comments are welcome, but snide remarks aren't. 
Yeah, right. Or, uh, yeah, and, and it's preferable if you read the book before you email me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, do you have any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? No, just uh, I, I just want to say I love the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's God's Word. It's His inerrant Word. Uh, and I, I keep learning new things. Every day that I study it, even though I've been studying it closely for 40 years, mm-hmm. um, and I just encourage all the listeners to to really dive into the Bible as a whole, including the Old Testament, and grow in their faith. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on, taking your time to come on and join us today, and I do hope to see you back here again sometime. Thanks, Nick. I'd love to be back. I appreciated the conversation. And I can remind everyone that next week we're going to have uh, Jason Oaks on talking about his book, Sharing Jesus with the Cults. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>